Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Censored, the podcast where I imagine how the Irish censors defined filth. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, and I'm having fun reading the books the filthy-minded old feckers hated. You can find me on Twitter at CensoredPod and Patreon too if you want to support the show. I get it if you can't contribute cash, so tell a friend or leave a review. It really does help. The book I'm talking about today is The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Published in 1951, it was banned in Ireland that same year. This book is told from the point of view of Holden Caulfield. He is a quintessential rich kid. His parents send him to expensive boarding schools, he plays tennis at the country club and has real expensive leather suitcases. All this privilege can't stop him from pissing his life away as he is expelled from school after school. Holden is a classic moody teenager. Everything is phony or boring, and he's filled with a restless, directionless energy. But he isn't a violent teenage rebel raging against society. He's just lost. He's unable to see a way out of a phony, pointless existence. This book was an instant bestseller and has remained extremely popular ever since. It is also one of the most censored books in American literature. In America in 1961, a teacher was fired for setting the catcher in the rye as reading for his class. School boards and librarians debated it throughout the 20th century and into the early 2000s. Australia banned it for less than a year in the 1950s, while the government of East Germany objected to a German language translation in the 1960s. So for once, Ireland wasn't weird to ban this book. Now, I chose this book at the suggestion of Eilish, who hosts the Plath & Co. podcast. Eilish is a 22-year-old graduate based in the north of Ireland. She was recently long-listed by the Ireland Chair of Poetry for their upcoming special commemorative anthology, aimed at reflecting upon the new generation of poets emerging in the literary landscape of a changing, increasingly diverse Ireland. Hailed for what the panel of judges described as a particularly compelling and moving piece, her work was noted for its rich religious subtext, earthy descriptions, and its concrete use of literary, religious, and sociological theory. Poet, podcaster, and literary analyst. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show, Eilish. Hello, Aoife. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I am very good and very excited to talk to you excited and just can't wait to really get into the 
earthy bits of Catherine the Rye. But firstly, of course, we'd need to have a drink to go with it. Oh, of course. Now, he seems to drink a lot of just cocktails. He doesn't say what they are. It's just cocktails. And he's only about 16, isn't he? Mm-hmm, he is, yes. So he's got this, like, he's only a kid, but he's out, like, pretending to be an adult almost. You know, he's he's having these very sophisticated drinks. And I thought the bit that was particularly funny was he claims he can drink lots and he's absolutely fine. But I mean, everybody says that when they're 16. It usually means they're pissed after a sniff. Did you think there was any other food or drink that really struck you? or? Yes, actually, there was. Um, so... I'm a, I am really like the idea of modernism in food studies. It's something that I'm really passionate about. And I think that for the character of Holden Caulfield, it, there's really no exception within that idea because Salinger says in the book that Holden doesn't really eat. There's uh, on page 116 a reference to the fact that he says, I'm a very light eater, I really am. That's why I'm just so damn skinny. When I'm out somewhere, I generally just eat a Swiss Swiss cheese sandwich and a malted milk. And I picked up on this because it's a repeated image throughout. He sort of is very much a sandwich kind of person. And with Holden, I think his food and drink choices are actually quite telling. I think they reveal like a subconscious anxiety surrounding trying to fit in or to appear more sophisticated than he really is. In public, when he's surrounded by his peers, he's automatic he automatically goes towards things such as cocktails or scotch or whiskey or so- whiskey and soda or a quintessentially teenagery food of the all-American hamburger and coke. But on his own, his dietary pattern is actually much closer to that of a child. And it's very reminiscent of a packed lunch. And this isn't the first time that Salinger actually uses food in his work. In his other stories, such as in Franny and Zoe, Franny's date orders a sophisticated French meal and she has a chicken sandwich that she doesn't touch. And there's a really great contemporary essay that was written in 1961 entitled J.D. Salinger, The Fat Lady and the Chicken Sandwich by James E. Bryan. And that discusses Salinger's use of food in his work. And the author, Bryan, talks about how Salinger uses food as an annotation. So a bit like... A bit like the way that you would highlight a specific event, Salinger keeps using the image of food over and over and over again within his work. And I think one of the reasons why the Swiss, the Swiss cheese sandwich and the malted milk keep coming up, because for Holden, he's choosing a sandwich because his appetite is acting as his inner voice in some ways. He's insecure, and given the cultural predisposition for conformity, he's choosing something we would say childish, simple, comforting, and if you think about it, non-alcoholic, because you know, it's the only thing that he probably actually enjoys. So I think if anyone is listening to this podcast, I personally would choose a glass of malted milk over a phony scotch and soda. <laughs> oh, phony. Everything is just phony. Every, everything is just phony, but everything's just phony. <laughs> now, the funny thing about this book is I actually read it first when I was 10, 10 obviously is not great. I thought it was terribly tedious. I was like, why is this famous? Jeez, this is a bit shite. When did you first read it? Are you, have you been a fan since the first reading? Oh, I have not been a fan since the first reading. I actually have a really interesting story to tell when it comes to how, the catch, how I encountered the catcher in the rye. So I read the book when I was an angsty, depressed and, and you know, generally loathing uh, mainstream society teenager, you know, very alternative and quirky. And I didn't enjoy it one bit. 
Um, I went to, like most people in Ireland, an uber-Catholic secondary school. And in part of this stereotypical Irish upbringing, um, one of the main things was that literature was really the only class where sex or anything immoral was actually brought up or discussed in passing. Uh, and I remember whenever we all, me and my friends, started reading the book, we would actually pass it around in the school locker room, like on loan, like, you know, and, and people would uh, dog ear passages or like underline certain bits uh, to like draw your attention to them. And it was like really seen as something really, really scandalous and uh, horrific and they would and we actually would loan it in turns to each other it was like one copy of the catcher in the rye and we all <laughs> and it was all passed around uh, like us group of girls and i remember reading it and i was left feeling very unimpressed with it all i didn't think it was at all sexy or scandalous i actually just thought it was really boring like really boring and i couldn't i couldn't understand why everyone was going mad over it you know <laughs> So when did you come to like Catcher then? Because you must like it if you suggested it. Yeah, I think I think I've come to like it in in some way that looking back at it now as a and you can really rise at this sage and wise twenty two year old, I sort of look back at it and I find it really humorous. Like all the stuff that was deemed so serious, like whenever Holden talks about how he, you know, if there's a next war, he's going to get involved in it, and you know, sit on the atom bomb, and the whole world's going to implode, like. I look back on it now and I see it as being really like darkly humorous. I actually, I, I, there's, whenever I read it again, because I read it again for this podcast, like it was so interesting to just sit back and go, oh wait, this is actually really funny. And it was so satirical. And sometimes in certain areas, you're just like one liners that would kill you. You know, like there's one, there's one in particular that I love when it's uh, his, uh, called in sister Phoebe, you know, Phoebe Weverfield Caulfield, and he laughs at her and goes, well, her middle name's Josephine, like, just uh, stuff like that. It just it just humours me, I suppose. It humours me in some way. We both read it thinking it was really scandalous, and obviously some of your classmates agreed. Oh, definitely. <laughs> but, I mean, I was, tr- I was trying to read it, you know, with my censorship goggles on, and I was thinking it was probably page one, because he says crap. Now, I know crap isn't a serious word now, but I presume in the 50s that was cutting edge swearing and may possibly have offended the censors. I actually was doing a little bit of research into this about why it was considered to be to be banned. And there's this great uh, thing called the Catholic World magazine. I know, please write it down. It's, it's excellent reading. Um, and one of the reviewers in like the 1950s uh, was called Riley Hughes. And he called the book an excessive use of amateur swearing and coarse language. And they actually received letters from disgruntled, pearl-clutching pillars of society. And according to one angry parent, the book contained 237 instances of goddamn, 58 uses of the word bastard, 31 Christ's sakes, and one incidence of flatulence as all that contributed as to what was wrong with Salinger's book. And I think... The, really what the issue here is not the bad language. I think it's more so the implied corruption of society. It's quite, I would argue, uh, you know, quite some of this stuff is quite hard hitting. Like the fact that we sort of, it's talking about experiences, for example, like mental breakdown, like death in the family. Um, the fact that whenever 
Holden goes to boarding school, there's that really uh, obscure scene where one of his classmates is thrown out the window and dies, falling to his death. Um, and also as well, the fact that we see instances of, you know, alleged homosexuality and very quite bitter tirades against capitalist systems. I think that is the more threatening thing than than swearing. And I think it's that what gets people's goat. It's the idea that if you're reading this at a young age, when you're impressionable, who knows, you might turn into a communist. And as we know, in the 1950s, that's really bad. So I think that's what got people's goat. Oh, sorry, the damn Christ's sake, fuck you goat. Well, if the Irish censor knew it was, you know, disapproved of by something called the Catholic world, then it goes without saying they would agree with the Catholic world. I really, I honestly think it was the nuanced review and it had nothing to do with the word Catholic as the title of the paper, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting one because it seems like they couldn't say what they really thought was offensive about it. If they're focusing on things like God damn, what they really want to say is, uh, some of them sound like they might be queer and we're a bit freaked out by that because Holden acknowledges that exists. Yeah, I think I think it's a fact also that, that it does exist. And also there's, you know, instances of like where, you know, I, I wouldn't say you would use this as a, as, a, as a blueprint for sex work, but it sort of, you know, would give you suggestions of, oh, like, this is actually how someone, you know, goes about, like, maybe engaging in pain for sex and sexual activities with someone. And that's probably kind of bad considered the, um, uh, for the time, considering that, you know, it's the golden age of Hollywood where you're brought to the bedroom door and no fervor. And the most graphic sex that he, well, sex that he sees is through the, the window of the hotel when he's looking at other people. So it's not even that Holden you know, gets his end away. It's like he's looking out, he's voyeuristically seeing other people's sexual encounters. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Also, side note, decriminalise sex work. Anyway, as we, as, as we were saying, because that's something that I feel very passionate about. Like, it, it's, it's, I think, for this idea that there's a lot of sex in this book, I think... <laughs> I was going to use the word verbal sex, but I don't think that's a, I don't think that's uh, an appropriate category. It's this idea that what I'm trying to get at is that linguistically speaking, sex is a word that's repeated loads of times in this book. You know, we're you're talking about how you, you know how you go on a date with a girl, how do you neck a girl, and all that sort of stuff. It it seems to be that everyone's talking about sex, but no one's actually doing it. Yeah, and I wonder. If it is this idea, I think Holden, for me personally, whilst he is immensely childish, I actually think the idea of sex scares him because he seems to be sort of when he goes out to engage the the sex worker and, you know, it's like, oh, Mac, you know, it's like five dollars for a good time. And he sort of like just says, you know, can we just talk? Like there's something really, I think, there's something really lonely and I suppose you know, I think he realizes in that moment he's just a very stereotypical teenager and he thinks, oh, I actually don't want to do this, but I can't really get out of it. So we're just going to have a polite conversation. And that, I think, is quite interesting for its time because, you know, if we think about the environment that Holden's in, it's very much all male and he probably doesn't really have a lot of women to talk to or get to know on a on a more, I would suppose, platonic basis. And the fact that that's his first encounter with a woman, it's almost he's treating her as if she's just like this thing that he can't even touch. 
any response to admire rather than look at it or do anything with it. It's just sort of like, oh, oh, you're actually real. Okay. His conversation with his um, neighbor, you know, before he was in school that summer, you know, and he obviously really fancied her, but he felt that it couldn't progress beyond friendship. And he felt like he couldn't take that step. Mm -hmm. And although he's quite clearly mad about her, you know, he's really stuck in a relationship that doesn't progress to a sexual level, then he just can't do it. So he spends so much of the book thinking about her and sort of mentally talking to her. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he never speaks to her. It's really tragic, actually. I thought that part was really sad. Yeah, I think I think for me, that's, that is a really tragic element of it. And also, I think as well, with Holden, love is complicated because if you think about it, his little brother, Alfie, who died, there was so much love there. And, and like such a strong sense of, I would suppose, familial and sibling love and the fact that he still keeps his baseball glove. Like there, there's definitely for him, I think, with Holden as well, there's something about love that to him is probably rather sacred, but also traumatic because he talks about how, he, you know, smashes all the windows in the garage and how he deals with that. I suppose that could also maybe make him more hesitant, as you say, to move a relationship onto the next level, because if something for him is so precious that he is lost and he's quite possibly afraid of the same thing happening again. That was something I never noticed when I read it as a child, that there mm-hmm. was a child who had died in his family. Yeah. And I never saw that. And I read it this time and I was like, oh, my God. Well, I mean, this explains Everything. so much about <laughs> yeah. him. Yeah. God's sake. And his mother nearly had a breakdown afterwards and they had to move. And you're like, well, yeah, he's pretty traumatized. He had a hard time. Yeah, he does. He does. And the fact and the fact that he talks about Ali as if he's still alive and then Phoebe corrects him and he's like, you don't, you know, you always say that he's alive. And it's like, oh, my God, this is awful. (laughs) I suppose apart from the tragedy of the loss of Ali, the school chapters. Oh, my God. When he's in the school, I just it's so hard to read. They are so stressful. Mm -hmm. I just felt I felt like screaming the whole time. I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Because this is obviously like a really ugly environment. It just felt really threatening and dangerous. Yeah, I think because it's threatening and dangerous for a number of reasons. Um, But mainly, I think it's the claustrophobic environment of it. Um, There's a really interesting study by Robert Dean entitled The Reproduction of Imperial Manhood that really looks into this boarding school mentality that was around in America in the 50s. And Dean defines the phenomena of imperial masculinity in this idea that in response to an environment of extreme social change, the white upper class um, have been sent into deep moral panic. So they use these schools as almost like a bit of like a jelly mold type thing. They're trying to form male characters that uphold the values of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, or as I like to call them, WASPs for short, because why not have an acronym? Um, And they're almost, it's like a calming of anxieties regarding the erosion of their political and social power. And they're essentially, schools are supposed to be a breeding ground. These types of schools like... um, Oh, I completely forget the name of it now. Um, it sounds like Ponzi, but it isn't. Yeah, whatever, whatever it's called, Ponzi, whatever. That they're that you know they're being shunted into public roles where you need to be the idea of the ideal man, which is you know violent and rough and ragged, but also really suave and sophisticated. But I think there's a necessary, as Robert Dean talks about, that in order to produce that kind of masculinity, 
you have to think of it in terms of collectivism. You need to almost extract a sense of blind strength and superiority and absolutism to create loyal and stoic people you need to create many soldiers of men who will conform who will follow orders and that's what the boarding school system does particularly for i would always think i always nearly call them uh uh straddler like the uh stationary sets that you get you know um <laughs> straddler with his um with his you know tie and good looks and like how he knows he's good looking because he walks around with his shirt off like i really think one of the images that captures this sort of like horrible corrupt development is the really crumbly razor that he uses when he's trying to shave himself like i know it's awful it's like a filled of like you know, dead skin cells and everything like for me, I think that is the that razor there. That is a symbol of corrupted masculinity within the book. You can't read it as anything other than that. You know, the fact that whenever men shave their face, you know, that's like an entry from boyhood to manhood. And, and that idea that, you know, he's trying to make himself clean cut and even nicer looking, but he's trying to do it with a faulty razor. That's really gross. Like, I think that to me, that razor just sums up that whole environment of, uh, violence and loyalty and strength and the fact that you know within that image of you know almost like hazing of peers to repudiate feminine characteristics and ostracism and ridicule like the one pinup boy who's supposed to think about that he's corrupted to the core and within that what do you do if you don't fit into that because if we think about how Stradler's this amazing guy and masculine and how it's almost like a brotherhood but it's an exclusionary brotherhood. What do you do if you don't fit into that? You end up getting beat up, as seen with Case in Point with Holden and start later when he comes home from his date with Jane and like ends up like punching his head into the floorboards. It's mad for a number of reasons, but I really think it's just that whole image of how peer groups are so influential, particularly in this day, particularly in that day and age, and also in this day and age, but you know. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When I read it, I was thinking about, like, this is famous for being, you know, teenage angst. But of <laughs> course, it's teenage boy angst. And 
there I couldn't think of an equivalent for girls, like an equivalent yeah. canonical piece of literature where you're like the girl expressing herself growing up into whatever femininity she's been, you know, told to expect. I think in terms of that, there's definitely a case in point to be made for androcentrism within culture. So, as you know, it's androcentrism is that idea that um, male experience and a male point of view are what is valued within life. And I think whenever we're trying to consider that from a female perspective, I think the, um, I suppose you could say one of the reasons why we don't have that is because, you know, patriarchal society, boo. But like also it's, it's, I think, to do with the fact that in trying to sum up, I suppose, a universal experience for womanhood is actually kind of difficult because there's so many factors you have to consider. Whereas maybe the reason why we consider J.D. Salinger's book to be a symbol of uh, manhood and teenage angst is because it's from a male perspective. If we think about it, what is it about Holden Caulfield that is so universal? It's allegedly that his emotions and experiences are universal, but I think one of the main reasons why it's held up as a thing as as the book is because within Holden there's an idea that someone's going to identify with that reality. It may not necessarily be a female reader, it may not even be a male reader, but someone is going to identify with that and it's a question of who, not how. And I think within trying to capture a female experience of that, it's much more complicated but also compelling. And I was I was thinking about that idea of why there's no equivalent of a teenage girl. And I was thinking of examples. I was thinking of, say, Jeanette Wonderson's Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit or The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, I love. Um, but even when I was thinking about those, that those books, the particularly within The Bell Jar, she's a college student. She's not a teenager. And I think it's because sometimes those books, that, that aspect of life, particularly for females, is so formative. It's formative for anyone, but I think more formative for females because there's so many changes that are occurring that I think to try and capture that, maybe it's too big of an ask. There's 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 too many things to consider. And within that experience, you almost have to cover every single avenue like in terms of, you know, how do you begin to write about teenage how do you begin to write about teenage experience is a big question, but how do you, be, do you begin to write about female experience is even greater because you need to use it, you know, I think whenever you're writing those types of literature, you need to be aware that you need to create it in such a way that it's a teaching moment, that it has value, that it resonates with the individual, but also like, how do you even begin to talk about, oh, well, I was first aware when I was sexualized at X age. There's a lot There's a lot of unspoken and unwritten universal truths that trying to get them down on page you know there's going to be people who'd be like it's fake news and and I feel like trying to write that is really really oh it's so it's so challenging yet so compelling compelling yet also so so complicated that maybe writing about male experience and when I'm saying this I'm saying maybe writing about male experience is easier but that doesn't mean that we should just always write about male experience I think with, with within female representation there's definitely a need there to get a fundamental tenant of Hidatchne on paper it's just a matter of when Holden is trying to tell a story of I think 
about how narrow the masculinity that he's presented with is for him. You know, I mean, he's constantly trying to reach out to people outside of that boy's circle that his school offers him. And I mean, he rejects the schools. That's why he gets himself kicked out because he just, he can't endure it. And he's looking for connection over and over and over again. And in the end, the only person he connects with is his younger sister, who's like, what's she, 10, 9 or 10 or something? Like, that's the only place of softness and tenderness that he can find Mm -hmm. in his life Mm -hmm. is that one person in his family. And it's just, it's such an indictment, I think, of, you know, of the form of masculinity that he was given. I know everyone talks about it as teenage angst, but I think he's talking about gender roles more than just being a teenager. But but, but he is. There's a real case to be made here for gendered perceptions and what that's like concerning our experiences of talking about experiencing and dealing with emotions. Like, you know, it's horrible But to to say this, but, you know, because we shouldn't be saying this, but, you know, still to this day, it's far more acceptable for women to be to be viewed as, you know, having emotional tendencies or breakdowns and and stuff like that in in comparison to men. And it's unfair. It shouldn't it shouldn't happen on the basis of gender that was acceptable and unacceptable. But I think you're right in saying that manhood it's definitely a narrow avenue. And if you don't fit in, which Holden clearly doesn't, then you're right, I think, in saying, how do you negate that? It, it, no wonder, I suppose, the purple he feels so claustrophobic because he's very much aware that he doesn't fit in and he tries to fit in, I think. But as we're going back to, you know, all that image is popping into my head is the bloody Swiss cheese sandwich, you know, that that just the, 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 the tiny child of him being like, oh, like this is actually what I really want. I don't want to be drinking. I don't want to be trying to encounter prostitutes and ringing up ex-girlfriends and taking them skating because their ass looks good in a skirt, you know? Like, it's not. No, I think, I think Holden Caulfield might deserve better. God forbid me for saying it, but maybe he deserves a little bit better than a little bit better than his sad little sandwiches. And what you say about the female emotions is paralleled in the storyline of his family. I mean, his mother, he talks about and how she's clearly had some sort of a nervous breakdown or has emotional difficulties oh that and also i think suffering from anxiety as well because he says that he doesn't like the fact he's been dropped out because it makes his mother worry yeah and his father is almost like a blank he's just a person who works and that's it like he's not real do you know what reminds me of um the cartoons i used to watch as a kid so like cartoon network and stuff where like you knew it was an adult on screen because you couldn't see their face like, that's, that's what I think of when I think of Holden's father. It's literally like a pair of legs and, and a suit. It's just like, he doesn't have a face. We, we never see it. Yeah, he's such an absence. He's he's a, just a provider, literally. That's it. He works and he earns money and the rest of the family are real to Holden. Yeah, that's why I think it's it's much more about the gender roles than just being a teenager. Although it is very much, I mean, nearly everything I read was like, oh, teenage disaffection. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But I think it's because of the gender that it's teenage disaffection. Mm-hmm. It's not just hormones driving him mental. <laughs> no, I think, I think, I think there's a beginning and an end for hormones. And I mean, maybe that, that, that is why teenage girls can read it also. And they can see, you know, that, 
the gender roles being offered to them are just as restrictive and, you know, that they have quibbles with how families work and the relationships within them. So maybe that that is where it draws its universality from, I suppose. Will we try the censorship bingo? I think we shall, yes. I thought it was quite a low score, but maybe you'll change my mind. Okay, let's see. So firstly, breasts. Well, yeah, he did talk about boobs. Yeah. It's, it's first of all, a book by a male author with a male point of view. So it kind of boobs are nearly mandatory. <laughs> the, the, the mammary glands are mandatory. <laughs> now that's a tagline. <laughs> uh, next one. Bestiality. Uh, no, I didn't think no. so. No, he lives in the city. Sex work. Well, definitely. Yes. 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 Even even if I think we would. Yes. I think even even if nothing happens, we would still classify that as sex work. That's definite tick on that one. But it isn't until quite late in the book. So yeah. the censors would have had to read a lot to meet that part. <laughs> uh, racism. Well, no, there isn't any discussion of racial politics or identities in any way, mm-hmm. is there? No. Drugs. I didn't think there were drugs, but maybe the slang was a bit funny and I missed it, but I thought it was all drink. Yeah. Or you could be really awkward and argue that drink is a form of drug, but... I know, but there are so many books full of booze. I know. I think, I think, I think, you know, I think maybe separate category. No, oh God, if you created a separate category for booze, we'd all be drowning in it like fish. So maybe not. I think you're right. No drugs. Politics. Well, I would say no explicitly. But what do you think about the sort of a lot of the literature around this book talks about, you know, capitalism and that it's a critique of capitalism? Well, I would think I would agree with the idea that it's some form of expose against capitalism within this book. And not just because I'm a communist, but for multiple <laughs> for multiple reasons. Um, I think the idea. The problems of capitalism are expressed in this book concerning the idea of conformity to established norms and practices and the fact that it's revealed with, I suppose, Holden's obsession with this idea of whether or not he could possibly be a homosexual. Um, And the reason why I talk about that is because um, during the Cold War, as I'm sure everyone's well aware, homosexuality and the, and being part of the Communist Party were sort of viewed as being one and the same thing. You know, if you were a communist, you could be a homosexual. And if you were a homosexual, you might be a communist. Um, and they were seen as being subversive elements of an American society. So I think in terms of that idea of potentially there being a hidden subculture that Holden may subscribe to because he is acutely aware that he doesn't fit in, is could be a sense of idea that that's one of the reasons why possibly, you know, it's it's banned in areas of the Iron Curtain, as you were mentioning before previously, that he's sort of refusing to conform to the norms of society's demands. Like there's there's a bit in the book where he meets his suave friend called, I think it's Luce. Yes, it's Luce. And he talks about how, he was always telling us a lot about creepy guys who go around having affairs with sheep and guys that that go around with girls' pants sewed into the lining of their hats and all, and flits and lesbians. Old Luce knew who every flit and lesbian in the United States was. All you had to do was mention somebody, anybody, and old Luce would tell you if he was a flit or not. So I think within there, and then further on, he talks about how he used to scare the hell out of us. I kept waiting to turn into a flit or something. 
So there's definitely, I suppose, this idea or I suppose more than natural anxiety and concern surrounding whether or not he is, if he is different, how is he different? And if he's not different because of convention, because of X, Y, and Z, then maybe he's, maybe he's gay. I think that that's, to answer your question, yes, if he's not conforming to the idealized Americana, then what is he? And I think he sort of dances with that idea and thought of being non-conformist and what that looks like. Because if you think about it, in the type of society that Holden's in, if you're non-conforming, you could be a communist. Yeah, and it's the Red Scare this time. Oh yes, with with McCarthyism and the House of Un-American Activities and Reds under the bed and all that kind of stuff, you know? So I think we could say politics is a really strong subtext in this, like... I think Very so, strong. yes. What do you think, based off my long-winded explanation, would you agree now? Yeah, no, I, I would be convinced by that, because his anxiety about being different is so profound that it, it it's about questioning the very nature of the society that he lives in. It's not just, I'm a little dorky and everyone else is into sport. You know, he's got much bigger issues with everything than that. Yes, he's got he's got much bigger issues than playing football. Yes. Right. So we'll, we'll take politics. Definitely. Yes, definitely politics. Right. Uh, swearing. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the major source of complaint at the time. It is written in the idiomatic language of, you know, a teenager of that period. So I think we could take that. I think we could, yes. Infidelity. I didn't think anybody... No, 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 you're right. Uh, crime. I didn't think so. I mean, apart from the sex work, obviously. Mm-hmm. The next one, genitalia. Oh, God, no. No. Poor Holden couldn't talk about something like that. God love him. Oh, God forbid, no. There's definitely no abortion. No. And definitely no orgies. God, no. <laughs> no. Sexual assault. I mean, yeah, there are a number of occasions where sexual assault is alluded to or described or sort of danced around. I mean, I think there's quite a lot of what Holden calls it perverty stuff. Mm-hmm. Because there's that really creepy ex-teacher who kind of like is stroking his head when he's asleep and all yeah. that. Yeah, and then there's also that like horrible scene where he talks about being in a car on a date and like the girl saying no, like stop and like take me home and the guy just keeps going no. Yeah, and, and then he goes, then he says, and then it's quiet and you're like, oh God. Yeah. No, there's definitely quite a lot of forms of sexual assault. Yeah. Extramarital pregnancy. No, I didn't think so. No, I don't really think they get even close to doing those types of acts that would result in that. So, no. That is probably true. Masturbation. I would have said no, but then there was this line on page 88 where he said the cab smelled like someone tossed his cookies. And I was like, does that mean puke or? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I'm not... I don't know. It it could be vomit. Shall we go out on a limb here and say yes? I think we could. And I think, like, if people didn't know what it meant, they would be so suspicious that, like, the censors would be thinking, well, if I don't know what it means, then it could be filthy. Yes. Yeah, so we'd take that one then. Uh, sex toys, no. No. <laughs> Feminism, I would say no to that, definitely. No, no. Divorce. Also, no divorce. No one seems divorced, which is kind of odd, actually. Yeah, you think one of them would be, at least. (laughs) Contraception. Also, no. Mm -hmm. Menstruation. No. 
I mean, there's there's nothing about that sort of level of detail of people's bodies, really. It's all shied away from. Yeah. Which is why it's silly to ban it, thinking that it's, you know, rude, because you are not going to learn how to do sex from this book. Uh, no, I think you would struggle. Blasphemy. Um, there's a lot of goddams, you know? There's a lot of goddams. I don't know if that would have offended the Irish censor as much, but I suppose... There is something that would have annoyed them where it was he was sort of given out about Catholicism and his Catholic friend and he was a bit sarky about it. Yes, he said like if if, if every Catholic wants to know if you're a Catholic or not. I really I really thought that was quite humorous. I was like I was like yeah, I was like where it was like where I'm from, like I can understand that. It's like are you this or are you that? And if you're not that then what are you, you know? But Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a great line. I know, it was. I was like, ah, yes, the old, do you add on the bit of the our father or not, you know? I think we could kind of tick that on the basis that the, I mean, it's certainly a-religious, which would be annoying to the censors. Yeah. So we tick that one. Um, oral sex, no. no. Graphic violence, no. But I mean, there is that, there is a subtext of violence in the school for definite. Mm -hmm, yeah. And then finally, queer content. Yeah, I mean, I do think, apart from the man that he spots dressing up in women's clothes on the other side of the the hotel window, that piece that you read out with flit and all of that, that's clearly... Oh, clearly, clearly, clearly about queer content. Yeah. So I think we could definitely emphatically take that one. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just seven out of 25. Oh, it's very weak. It's pretty weak, isn't it? For such a famously banned book. Yeah, you, you'd think there would be more. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if, if they ever read these books. I have my doubts. I don't think they bothered. I'm, I, I'm, going, I'm going to agree with you there, Eva. I was just over-listening over your podcast. I'm kind of starting to see why. You, you, you might think that, you know... <laughs> Yeah, it's like, lads, you're making it up. But which bits do you remember were highlighted in school, you know, as the book was going around? Oh, my goodness. Um, let me remember. Well, the, the scene in the hotel where he uh, where he uh, tries to procure a sex worker. And what else was mentioned in the book? Um, the scene where he talks to Luce in the bar about like if, if if you're gay or not, you know, all that all that sort of thing, yeah. And uh, his date with Sally, I suppose th those bits sort of stick in my mind because I remember people being like, oh my god, like this, and like someone had actually highlighted it. Like I'm, I'm one of these people where if there's one thing I hate, it's people highlighting a book with a with a highlighter marker i hate that and i just always remember reading the bit about him and moose in the bar and it was just glaring neon yellow staring me right in the eyes so i think i would agree i think i would agree that maybe yes that's a that's a wee bit scandalous but considering that we were all very you know we were teenagers who had never been exposed to that kind of thing before i could understand why people would think that would be really scandalous like the idea that the the, the idea that there's something other right there than mary and joseph and the, the three wise men you know it, it was probably quite revolutionary for its time i suppose now reflecting on it the capture in the rye was quite possibly the start of i suppose me really starting to interrogate literature and wonder what is out there beyond the big wide world of uh, convent school and Jesus, Mary and Joseph? And What I love is that this book has this reputation for being so dangerous. And within 
your school context, it actually functioned just like the censors thought it would, with people <laughs> passing it around, the one copy going, uh, you know, see page 68 there? Can you just like look at page 68? Oh my God. It's written in 1951, isn't it? And it's still doing that. That was like the best thing we could find in like 2014. Like, oh my God, what were we thinking? And like, you know, the most hilarious thing about it was, was that like, I can remember people, you know, saying about all those types of stuff. And like, I remember someone else, someone was reading the Marquis de Sade's philosophy of the bedroom. Yeah, and and I can remember like them showing me a bit from that. And I was like, that is so boring. Like, like why why are you reading this? And it's like it's really scandalous. I mean, it's not scandalous. He's literally having a conversation of a group of people. It's really boring. And and yeah, so it functioned. Uh, literature in that wacky place where I was educated for a couple of years was functioned as like a really big taboo thing. But thank you so much, Ailish. That has been amazing. I mean, the catcher in the rye is. It's not something that I would say I love, but I have a newfound respect for it. And I think I learned a lot about its importance. And I'm gobsmacked that it's still going strong as a, you know, sexy book for teenagers. Well, no, thank you for having me. It was a ball. I enjoyed every minute of it. And that's one of the most controversial books in American literature read and rated. It's legendary as a bad influence on the youth especially since Mark Chapman justified his murder of John Lennon using The Catcher in the Rye. On the inside of the copy he carried the day he shot Lennon, he had written, This is my statement. But Catcher is not a book about explicit sex or graphic violence. Salinger's portrayal of teenage alienation is compelling because readers can find themselves in it. And I suppose that narrative freedom terrifies censors everywhere. In a complete change of tone, I'm reading Jackie Collins for the next episode. Her 1969 book, The Stud, is part of the bonkbuster genre, a type of popular fiction written primarily for women. I read the first bonkbuster, Forever Amber, way back in season one, and Collins' book continues the tradition of romantic heroines living their best lives and having great sex. At least, I hope it does. I'll be so disappointed if a book called The Stud isn't explicit. I'm quite excited to read a book deemed rude enough that my parents' generation, busy having sex and children in the 70s, weren't allowed to read it until the 80s. Until next week, pick up a dangerous book and allow yourself to be led astray. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.